We can be dream makers, nurturing, compassionate. Nosotros podemos ser más unidos. We can be anything. I'm Grant Oliphant. This is We Can Be. Flint is a story of what happens when the very people responsible for keeping us safe care more about money and power than they do about us or our children. Even now, she is still such a badass, forgive me, uh, she is still such a badass that she's still blowing the whistle on what the Snyder administration is doing wrong. Such a badass. Monahan Atisha, thank you so much for being with us. Thanks for having me, Grant. You've been a hero to me for a while, even before we met, because of the extraordinary work you did to bring attention to the travesty that was happening in Flint. Thank you. I have to agree with Rachel Maddow's <laughs> characterization of you as a badass. How is it being referred to that way? It's a huge compliment, but it was mm -hmm. very difficult to explain to my children. Uh, <laughs> I can imagine. You, you cannot call mom a badass. <laughs> Let's start with the issue that brought you onto the national spotlight and what happened in Flint. Can you tell us a little bit of, of the story about how you began to realize something was wrong? So it all happened very randomly. So I was at my house with some girlfriends from high school, drinking a glass of wine, just catching up. And one of my girlfriends, who's actually a Pittsburgh native, uh, went to Carnegie Mellon. She's like, Mona, have you heard about the water in Flint? I'm like, yeah, you know, there's complaints, there's been bacteria issues, but they had a chlorine and there was all but you know the state says everything's fine so everything's fine she's like well you know water switches are, are really rare you know nobody really goes from a high quality water source the great lakes to a lower quality water source unless like you're running out of water and the great lakes aren't really going anywhere and then she shared that she had just seen a memo that was leaked from a colleague of hers at the EPA. So she used to work at the EPA in D.C. during the D.C. water crisis about a decade ago. And she's like, I know this guy, this colleague. His name is Miguel Del Toro. I know, I'm, I know him well. He's serious. He's ethical. And he released this memo that Flint was not using corrosion control. And in her eyes, you can see, like, this horror. And I'm like, okay, what, what the heck is corrosion control? I have no idea what corrosion control is. She's like, well, you know, a city of that size, if they don't use corrosion control, there's going to be lead in the water because there's pipes were made of lead. There's so many lead in all of our plumbing throughout the country, especially the Northeast and the Midwest. And that was the very first time with a glass of wine in my hand at my home that I heard the word lead in our water. And I, I just literally freaked out you know did you immediately think about your patients absolutely so as a pediatrician trained in public health we know what lead is and we already know that it's a form of environmental injustice we know that it's a form of environmental racism it disproportionately impacts our most vulnerable children be it in Flint or Detroit or Pittsburgh or Philly or Baltimore or Chicago, we already know that Flint kids have higher rates of lead. And the science on lead has been stunning in the last few decades. Good morning, Mr. Chairman. I'm Herbert Needleman. I'm a professor of psychiatry and pediatrics at the University of Pittsburgh. When I last testified here in 1979, there was considerable disagreement about the uh, impact of lead at low dose on children. That's been effectively settled uh, in the period since that time. And there is a, a broad consensus on the part of everybody except the lead industry and its spokesman that lead is extremely toxic at extremely low doses. 
we now recognize official federal declarations that this is the most serious environmental disease of children. The more we study lead, the more we find effects at lower and lower doses in, in broader and broader systems in the human body. We now know that there is no safe level and that even the smallest levels dull the potential of a child and impact cognition and behavior and really their entire life course trajectory. So as someone who knows that, and as someone who knows that our Flint kids are already struggling with every adversity possible. So we have a 60% poverty rate for our kids. We have no full-service grocery stores. We have one of the highest violent crime rates in the city. Before this exposure, I had kids with lead poisoning because of retained bullets, bullets retained in their bodies. And to add something that was so preventable to a population already burdened with so much, I stopped sleeping. I stopped eating. So I wanted to find out if this was getting into our children. I wanted to see what the blood lead levels were. And I knew that all the blood lead levels done on children go, there are surveillance programs for that. You know, that's what health departments do. I tried to get that data from both the county and the state level and couldn't. So I started to look at the data in my own clinic and in our hospital where many children get their lead levels done. We compared pre-water switch to post-water switch. There was an increase in children's lead levels, almost double from what it was previously. We shared it with city leaders, and they didn't seem interested. So with really kind of a coalition of you know the medical community, the medical society, our health coalition, uh, the United Way held a press conference, which is not something doctors do. This research is concerning. These results are concerning. And when our national guiding organizations tell us primary prevention is the most important thing and that lead poisoning is potentially irreversible, then we have to say something. It's kind of academic disobedience. We are supposed to publish and present our findings at conferences and go through the peer review process, mm -hmm. but there was no other option. These kids did not have another day. We had to share the information and that we needed to declare a health advisory. And I think at that point, a lot of the country thought of, to the extent they thought about lead and lead in the water at all, thought of it as a problem that we had corrected decades Absolutely. ago. And maybe had lost a sense of how dangerous lead is. And you touched on this a moment ago, but I'd love for you just to share with folks why lead is so dangerous for kids. Yeah. So we've known about the evils of lead really for centuries. Um, many people hypothesize the demise of the Romans is because they used lead in their plumbing, but they also put it in their food and did some other crazy things with it. We purposefully mined it from the earth. We put it in paint, we put it in gasoline, and we put it in our plumbing. There was a really, really strong lead industry lobby that was racist, that really blamed the victims, um, and that really put profits over people. So our nation was very stubbornly slow to restrict lead mm -hmm. from a lot of these sources. You know, in the, across the ocean in the 1920s, Europe stopped using lead in paint. That same year is when we put it in gasoline. The industry consuming the largest tonnage of American lead is the automotive industry. Almost every car uses lead in storage batteries, solder and bearing metals, and even in brake linings. In addition, lead is used in gasoline for better performance. In the modern high-compression engine, modern gasoline gives the greater performance required today. This model shows how just the right amount of fluid containing tetraethyl lead and dye is added to the gasoline. 
And then lead and plumbing was also used for a long time until about 1986 in our service lines, which are the lines from the water mains to your home. So the the research on lead and what it does to children is is primarily done in the field of epidemiology, where they look at large populations of children exposed to lead. And based on those large-scale studies, and many of them, it dulls cognition. So it actually shifts that IQ bell curve to the left. So you have less gifted children, and you have more children who may need special education services, more with developmental disabilities. It causes behavior problems, things like attention deficit disorder, impulse problems, memory problems, causes hearing problems. Also impacts other organ systems. It can, you know, contributes to anemia and cardiac disorders. There was a big paper that came out a couple weeks ago in The Lancet about its role in hypertension um, and other kidney disease and strokes. So it impacts almost every organ system. However, um, I love to trick my medical students and my residents. I'm like, well, how does a kid with lead poisoning present, you know, when he comes to clinic? And they'll be like, oh, he's having problems in school or he's got a headache or a stomach ache. And the answer is nothing. Our eyes do not see the consequences of lead exposure. There's a time lag, so there, we don't see the, the, you know, the impact for years, if not decades. So you, knowing this, make the extraordinary decision to hold a press conference, and as you said, it's an act of academic disobedience. And I know that in scientific circles, that often doesn't end well. <laughs> uh, so it really was a moment of courage for you to do that. Can you say a little bit about how you crossed that threshold? It was a choiceless choice. There was no other option. You know, as a physician, as a pediatrician, I literally took an oath to protect these kids. It is my job. I took an oath to be their healer, their protector. Uh, it's in our job description to be an advocate for children. We have to use our voices to speak up for kids, especially in communities where the voices, especially of our children, are being squashed. But at the mm. moment you decide that you're going to take action and you begin to speak out publicly, you get this extraordinary reaction from the state, <laughs> which is to accuse you of being, I think the phrase was an unfortunate researcher. The suggestion was that you were either misguided, lying, or wrong. Or quack. Or, mm. Yeah. <laughs> Did you expect that reaction and, and how did you respond in that moment? I felt great after that press conference. I'm like, yay, we're protecting people. They now know, you know. And then quickly, the state went in attack mode. Um, so they called me unfortunate, that the research was unfortunate, that I was causing near hysteria, which is fantastically sexist as well, splicing and dicing the numbers. And most importantly, they said that their numbers, remember, they have these numbers, there is a surveillance program, that their numbers were not consistent with my numbers. And this is a state that probably employs 50 epidemiologists, and they're saying that I'm wrong. So I anticipated this pushback because everybody in this story had been attacked. For 18 months, the moms, the pastors, the activists, the journalists, the water scientists, everybody in the story was attacked. But when you're in that moment, you cannot prepare for that moment. And it was very personal. It was visceral. Like I was literally shaking. Um, I took my pulse rate and it was over 200. I wanted to throw up. And then I began to second guess myself. Like maybe I am wrong. Like what the heck am I doing? Like maybe this is all wrong. Maybe I screwed up. But that also lasted just a short period because I realized that every single number in my research, every number on my spreadsheet was a kid. And it was a kid that I had probably seen over that last year. And those kids 
got me out of bed and they made me keep fighting. And we fought back with more numbers and we fought back with more science and more research to say, hey, this is why we're right and you're wrong. So the kids themselves were your source of strength. Absolutely. They, they're, to this day, they are my inspiration and they keep me going. And they are guiding us. So shortly after the crisis, a teacher from a toddler classroom, uh, she's like, Dr. Mona, you know, the, the toddlers made you something. And I'm like, what is it? She's like, they made you a water bottle chandelier. And it's gorgeous and it's multicolored and it sways in the wind. And I'm thinking about these two-year-olds and they made something so beautiful out of something so tragic. They took our water bottles and they made art. If these kids can tell us what to do, like these kids are literally telling us what to do, like we owe it to them. We must, you know, we must continue to do this work. That is such a beautiful story. At the moment when you were being attacked by the state, did you know at that point what had happened, what had caused the lead problem to begin with? Yeah. So I had learned by then that the state wasn't using corrosion control in the water treatment. And I'd also learned that, for example, General Motors stopped using this water because it was corroding engine parts like a year prior to my press conference. So it, it didn't take fancy research. It didn't take a doctor or anybody. Like it was common. Like if it's corroding engine parts, what is it doing to our plumbing that is predominantly lead-based? I'm constantly amazed by that part of the story. I know. I that, love to say that, it. That General Motors stopped using the water. But it didn't occur to anybody in the state that maybe they should stop using the water. Alarm bells, like fire alarm bells, should have gone off all over. That should have been national news when that moment happened. And it was actually covered in the media, but it not like not the repercussions yeah. or the implications of it. And really more resources. Have there been moments along the way, and I imagine there have, where you've your heart has just been broken? Yeah, I, I remember probably my saddest day. Um, we were still getting trying to get the state to recognize that this was a problem, but we were getting more of the water lead results back from different places. And there's a building adjacent to our hospital, which is a home for abused and neglected kids, like literally like the kids who have had so much adversity in their life. And the lead level in that building was over 5,000 parts per billion. And I just lost it. I'm like... You know, it's like the world is conspiring against these children. Like, this is the last thing that these kids needed on top of every other toxic stress that they've had in their life. So I want you to meet Lily. Lily is a little girl that just came to clinic for her four-year checkup. My first question was, how old are you? And she is one of those kids that absolutely shouts her age. I'm four! Like, okay, great. What do you want to be when you grow up? Like, Lily, what do you want to be when you grow up? She's like, I want to be five! Like, that's awesome. But Lily Lily knows something. Um, She knows. She knows that every year is an achievement. Even before our water crisis, kids in Flint were struggling with every disparity that you can think of. We were in crisis for decades. Decades of disinvestment, unemployment, racism, poverty, violence, population loss, crumbling schools, almost everything you can think of. Flint is one of those places, like many in this country, where the zip code that you are born in is the greatest predictor of where you will end up. Children in Flint actually live 15 years less than children in a neighboring zip code. 15 years. Every year is an achievement. Lily's mom turned to me with an all too familiar look, a look of fear, anxiety, guilt. And she asked me, is she going to be okay? Is she going to be okay? 
they thought the water was fine. They were told the water was fine. I mean, why, why wouldn't the water be fine? It's America, right? The richest country in the history of the world. It is the 21st century. This is not, you know, the cholera epidemics of the 19th century. Do I tell her that for almost her entire life, she has been drinking lead-tainted water? Do I tell her that every single agency that was supposed to protect her failed and looked the other way? Do I tell her that she was poisoned by policy? And just to recap how this happened, the state had decided to take control of the city itself. Right. And do you want to pick sure. up the story from there? So Flint was suffering from decades of crisis, economic crisis, disinvestment, poverty, unemployment, lots of issues, so much so that we were almost bankrupt in 2011. You know, Flint was taken over by the state. We were under financial emergency management. The only goal was austerity, to save no money, no matter what the cost. And we stopped getting water from the Great Lakes, and we started getting water from our local Flint River. Um, however, the water wasn't being treated properly. It was missing an important ingredient called corrosion control. It's necessary, mandatory ingredient. I think of it like a medicine that you put in the water to prevent whatever is in the pipes from corroding out. And without this ingredient, our water was 19 times more corrosive than the water from the Great Lakes. General Motors, which was born in Flint, stopped using this water because it was corroding their engine parts. Yet the people of Flint were told to relax, that, that everything was okay. During this crisis, people in Flint were paying the highest water rates in the country because of this emergency management uh, situation. So we were asking some of the poorest people in the country to pay the most in the country for water that they couldn't even drink. Quite literally, the state did this to Flint. Yes. Quite literally. Yep. What finally broke through, do you think? You became a master of messaging and a master of using the media and a master of marshalling the science. In an era, by the way, when policymakers right. increasingly disbelieve in science right. that they find inconvenient. How did you finally break through? Yeah, you know, I think it's, it's definitely a case where kind of our science spoke truth to power. Mm -hmm. uh, you couldn't fight the numbers. Ultimately, I think the break came after having a conversation with uh, somebody at the state. So a week or so into the crisis, after they're still saying I'm splicing and dicing and I'm wrong, the state medical doctor, the chief medical executive, called me. Then my head, I'm like, why the heck is she calling me? Like, why is somebody from the state calling me? Does she want to further attack me? Like, what's going on? And then she's like, I want to have a, you know, can we have a physician-to-physician -physician conversation? And medicine, that's like often what we say when like, let's just cut through the crap. Like, what's going on with this patient? Um, and she's like, tell me how you did your research. What did you do? I want to try to compare apples to apples and see maybe why our numbers are not consistent. So we began to just have an academic scientific discussion. So I, I think that was the, the breakthrough. And she, she's the one that got the state to relook at their numbers. And then a week later, the state had a press conference where she said, we, we looked at the numbers and, you know, Dr. Mona's right. We do have a lead problem. Well, did it feel good to no, be vindicated? No, absolutely not. I wish they found the opposite because to be vindicated meant that, yeah, we really do have a problem. Has the state behaved responsibly since? Have they gotten religion on this? It's ongoing. It was too stilted, too slow. You know, there could be more, but there have been investments in a lot of the nutrition and health and education things that are needed. We have not seen the long-term investment in that. 
you know, we did declare a state of emergency in the city, which went up to the county and state and, and federal level. But it's just the beginning. There's there's much, much more that needs to be done. There's also a huge process of accountability underway. There's many criminal investigations. I talk a lot about lead, but we also had an outbreak of Legionnaire's disease, also because of the water. So the the corrosive water ate up iron in the iron pipes, and that ate up the chlorine in the water, and that created a perfect milieu for the overgrowth of pathogens like Legionnaire's disease, which you inhale and you usually get in big kind of hospital water systems. Twelve people died. Uh, there was an, kind of an uptick in pneumonia mortality, which was probably related to this crisis as well. And so we actually have negligent homicide charges for, for people at the state because of these Legionnaire's deaths. There's hundreds of class action lawsuits. The accountability is critical because you can think of it like a truth and reconciliation process. Like we need to know what happened and why so this doesn't happen again, but also for the justice issues. There also needs to be a role for reparations to really kind of move on to that long process of reconciliation. Were you surprised when the governor recently declared that it was the situation was good enough, so he was suspending the bottled water program? Yeah, so that was unfortunate. So a few weeks ago, the governor stopped the bottled water supplements. And we need that to continue for several reasons. Our water testing, the lead levels in our water are much better. They're better than actually many other cities. The reason that we need that to continue is because Flint is doing something that no other city is doing in such a rapid speed. We are replacing our infrastructure. We are replacing our lead pipes. And when we do, we'll only be the third city in the country that has done that. When you do road work, infrastructure work, any kind of earth-moving work, you displace the lead scale that is underneath those pipes. And that increases people's exposure to lead. We wanted the bottled water to continue until that infrastructure work was being done. But another reason that was necessary or continues to be necessary is because of that affordability issue. People are still paying high rates of water. There are still shutoffs to this day because people can't pay their water bills in Flint. So that bottled water was also bridging that affordability. Environmental injustice that disproportionately impacts the poor and the black. A disrespect for science, for scientific truth, and an abandonment for our civic responsibility, our deep obligation as human beings to care and provide for each other. I'm fascinated by how you became you, because you're a really interesting person. You're a mom. That must have played uh, into this along the way. You also have, I think, a special affinity for families who come from other places, because that's part of your story, too. Absolutely. So let's talk about you for a moment. How was being a mom a factor in all of this? <laughs> I think it played a huge role. You know, I see my kids in Flint no different than my children. My children, I have two little girls. They often say, like, it's like we got, like, 6,000 new siblings, you know? <laughs> so they are no different than my kids. And like a lot of us, I'm an immigrant. You're an immigrant. Mm -hmm. uh, your parents were immigrants. Mm -hmm. So talk a little bit about where you came from and why that was influential for yeah. you. Yeah. So I'm Iraqi-American. We... Uh, immigrated to the UK right before I was born. My dad got a scholarship to get his PhD in metallurgy. So he's a metal guy. I've grown up with metals in Sheffield, England, which is a steel town, very much like Pittsburgh. And my father finished his PhD in 1979, and the plan was to go back to Iraq. That was home. But at that time uh, is when Saddam Hussein was rising in power. My parents are leftists. They're opposition people. They're pacifists. They had uh, dissidents. They had friends who went missing, who disappeared, who were imprisoned. 
uh, who lost limbs. If they went back, my father was assigned to work at a nuclear plant, and he had no interest in advancing the nuclear regime for the Ba'athist Party in Iraq. Ironically or not, it was uh, that, that nuclear plant was bombed by Israel, I think, in 1981. So he probably would have died. So we immigrated to the States. Uh, we came to Michigan, where most Arab Americans are in this country. And my father did a postdoc there, which was really the only kind of visa he could get was to advance his education at Michigan Tech University. So my parents, even though they were in this country, they remained very part of kind of the opposition movement. And I remember the first time, and I think this is very much what shaped me, um, I think I was about 12, and my father showed me a picture of a, a dead baby. It was a baby in Halabcha, which is in northern Iraq and Kurdistan, that was poisoned in the largest chemical warfare, warfare attack. 5,000 people were murdered. So here was a dictator, a ruler, who poisoned his own city, literally poisoned his own city, his, his own people. And I saw this baby who was snuggled, being held by her father, and both of them were, were dead on the ground. And I never erased that picture in my head. You know, I set out to write this book and like, I, I had to include that story, you know, and these immigrant roots because, you know, they're not dissimilar. You know, we came to the States and very much got that American dream. But every day, the kids I take care of in Flint, they don't have access to that American dream. They are literally waking up to a nightmare every day. Why? Like, why? Like, how, and like, how can I have gone from like one country that literally poisoned an entire population to another country that is doing the same thing. So do we not even care about our own children, you know, let alone care about children in other countries? Like we gave Saddam Hussein the chemicals and all this stuff to make him do that. You know, so it's it's complicated. And I think we often have blinders on. Uh, so my book is called What the Eyes Don't See. It's literally like we don't see lead in water. It's clear, it's invisible. We don't see the consequences of lead, but it's also about populations we don't want to see and problems we don't want to see and history that we don't want to see. You know, it's complicated and it's nuanced and it makes us uncomfortable. But we need to open our eyes and we need to stay awake or else we will repeat many of our same mistakes. And you've actually been pretty outspoken with respect to the Trump administration's stand on immigrants and refugees, that another population we don't want to see about the consequences of that. It's common sense. It goes against the very grain of this nation. We are literally a nation of immigrants besides the native people. This is who we are. This is These are the arms that welcome us to this country. So, you know, immigrants have made so many contributions. Um, we need to continue to be welcoming, especially to those who are fleeing tyranny and oppression uh, to come to this country. You've testified before Congress now. You've become an outspoken advocate. You've got this book coming out. Uh, I'm retiring. I'm done. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no more big issues okay. for you, right? But do you see hope on the horizon? Yeah. So I am an optimist. Mm. I am an absolute innate optimist. And I am full of hope and of a promise of tomorrow. And I see it. I don't just say it. I see it, especially in our work in Flint. Like, we are doing awesome stuff. Like, incredible stuff that we should have been doing a long time ago, but we're doing it now. This is work that we should all be doing. There are Flint's 
everywhere. Mm. And not talking about lead poisoning specifically, but kids who have been forgotten, you know, policies that do not value our children. So we need to elevate all of these issues so that there's hope for all of our kids, our kids in Pittsburgh, Flint, Detroit, Chicago, you name it. There are too many kids, black, brown, white, who are suffering from very similar obstacles. Do you think that we fail our children because we don't see them or because we don't care or they're other people's children? How do you see that? I think it's a combination of all of that. It really comes down to they don't vote. Because they, you know, they're not an electorate that we have to respond to, we forget about them and we don't value them. And, and so much of this is common sense. And it's even economic common sense. Like the return on investment of like early childhood work is like $17, $18 per dollar invested. So then why don't we do it? Like wh wh why is there a lack of political will? Who have we become? Who owns us? You know, where is our common humanity, that civic responsibility, that obligation of us as humans to just care about each other? It's so beautifully said. So the name of this program is We Can Be. And I'd like to end with you completing that sentence as you would like to see it completed. We can be what? We can all be heroes. So that that is the story of Flint. Like, if you are a mom or a school teacher, a pediatrician, engineer, no matter who you are, we can be powerful. We have it within us to make a difference. We can help each other open our eyes and see these problems and, and tackle them. We, we can be powerful. If ever we needed an example of the powerful good that one person with equal parts caring and toughness can do, we need look no further than Mona. The care and love she has for her own family and patients fuels her outspoken advocacy for the people of Flint and in turn serves as inspiration for others around the country and the world to learn, organize, and speak out. As Mona has said, it is our job to be the voice of the voiceless. The power of her voice has changed lives for the better, and now it is up to us to accept her challenge to do the same for the most vulnerable under our watch, a challenge we can all take up each in our own ways.